God's people have always been quick to lose heart. You think back to 1 Kings chapter 18, and you have this incredible scene, one I've described to you before, one no doubt that you have read and are familiar with yourselves. And you have Elijah, right? And he goes up to Mount Carmel, and you have the scene in which you have the 850 false prophets, and they have called out to their false gods, and they have cut themselves, and they have made these awful cries all the day long, and they have heard nothing but utter silence from their God. But, but the prophet Elijah prays a quick, pithy prayer, and the answer, the response from this, to this quick, pithy prayer, a, a prayer that James says is a model for our own prayers, and God sends a missile of fire across a darkened sky, and he completely incinerates the offering of Elijah. But then you get to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And Jezebel has said that she wants Elijah's head on a plate, right? And so you have Elijah who is just seeing God answer his prayer with a missile of fire. And what does Elijah do? He says, you know, I think I should just die. I should just die. I, I, I am all alone here. Nobody cares about me. There is no success available to me. God doesn't want me. No, I'm a prophet all alone. God, I, it would just be better if I would just die. He loses heart. He loses heart. After this incredible revival moment, after this great display of valor and courage and faithfulness, Elijah loses heart. In the Exodus, you have Moses. He leads and he, 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 he help, watches as God delivers his people from uh, oppression of Egypt. And God delivers his people by swarming all of this mighty nation of Egypt with bugs and turning the life source of the Nile literally into to blood. He strikes the firstborn of every person in the whole nation of Egypt, in every house with the with the angel of death striking them dead, the firstborn of each one. Every house in the, whole, uh, in the whole nation is struck. The mightiest military begins to pursue them, even as Pharaoh had relented, pursues them as far as the Red Sea. It looks as though they are going to die. But God divides the Red Sea and he sends them across. And as the military begins to follow after them, God, he then causes the, the sea to crash in on the military as though it was some kind of modern war, war mechanism. He, he brings them across the wilderness, guiding them literally by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He rains bread down on them and he brings them to the edge of the promised land. And having brought them to the edge of the promised land, he, they send out 12 spies. And you know what the report of the 12 spies was? 12 spies, they come back to the nation of Israel, and 10 of the 12, you know what they say? We can't take the land. God has brought us all this way just to die. God has brought us all this way. We go in, the, the, the men of Canaan are like, Giants, we are like grasshoppers in comparison to the man of Canaan. We would be better served just to stay out here and hang out in the desert. Why would God 
bring us this far. We are like grasshoppers to be stomped beneath their feet. They're disheartened. They go to the edge of the promised land, having witnessed incredible feats by the might of God, and then they get to the edge of the promised land, and they totally lose heart. See, I think this is one of the markers of the fallen condition, one of the markers of the human condition, that even when we've witnessed the might of God, even when we've witnessed the capacity of God, even when we've witnessed the willingness of God, that we lose heart because we don't feel like God is able to do what we need Him to do. And so over the course of the history of the people of God, we have been quite quick to lose heart. And so what we're going to see this morning in our passage is that Paul is going to teach us, Paul is going to show us that Jesus came, Jesus came so that we might not lose heart. In fact, Jesus came not only so that we might not lose heart, but so that we might persevere in this life, so that we might have a full life now, and for the purpose of us having a joyful life forever. That Jesus came now so that we might not only not lose heart, but live with a thankful heart. So if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we're again, we're in our second week of Advent. Second week of Advent. I want you to think about the way that I, I just phrased that. I just phrased that very specifically because you'll remember Advent is Latin for coming, right? Coming. So we're celebrating the coming of Christ and we're preparing, awaiting the second coming of Christ. So, we, so Jesus came, Jesus came so that we might not lose heart. So when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, would you stand with me? We read God's word together. There's a reason that we uh, we sang that first song way back from the uh, old youth group days. I sang that song in my office all week long. There, handy Andy. All right, Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. This will probably sound quite familiar to you if you were in the youth group because we did sing this quite a bit. All right, chapter four, verse seven says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. I know, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to those things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word this morning. You may be seated. So as chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians is kicking off, Paul is talking about the light of the gospel. He says that, that for the natural man, for, for the natural world, that the mind is darkened to the gospel. That they're unable to see the truth about Christ. They're unable to see the truth about the good news. They're unable to appreciate what, what God has done and what Christ has come to do and what Christ has come to accomplish. But, but, but because of the Spirit's work, because of what Christ has supernaturally done in, in you, in the church, in the Christian, because what the Spirit has opened our eyes and illuminated our minds, because the light of the gospel has come and set free our eyes, now we are able to see this great treasure. Now we are able to see what Christ has done. And we are able to appreciate it and love it and treasure it. This has been a long-term message dating all the way back to the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2. And in chapter 2 of the, of the first letter to Corinth, he had told them that, that, these things, the, that these things are foolishness to the natural man. That they are spiritually discerned. And so he's, he's driving that letter home. And so he's, he's or that message home. And so he's saying, but, but now you, you have seen it. You have received the, the light of the gospel. And the light of the gospel is illuminating your mind and you're, you're able to, to treasure it and love it and enjoy it. And, and you're, you're able to, to really delight in it. And he's, he's bringing a contrast for them. He's bringing a contrast for them because they were having quite a bit of, difficult, uh, quite a bit of difficulty with his ministry. You see, that, that in, the, uh, in the Greek world where, where Corinth was... They had difficulty accepting and embracing Paul as a messenger. They wanted Paul to be a more stoic messenger. They wanted Paul to be a more eloquent messenger. They wanted Paul to be an eloquent orator. That's why Paul says, I come to you and I have nothing but the foolishness of the gospel. I, I don't come to you with eloquent words. I, I, do, I don't come to you with smooth speeches. I don't come to you with, with, with the, a great oratorical tradition. I just come to you with the foolishness of the cross. And they look to Paul and Paul looks like a broken down man. That, you know, by I've read this week that Paul was like four feet, six inches tall, and Paul walked hunched over, and Paul was probably had a limp, and, and Paul was uh, not particularly a, an attractive man, and, and Paul was not the kind of man that fit into first century Greece when they thought about their picture of, of the ideal orator and their picture of the ideal leader of the kind of movement that they would have wanted. And so when they thought of the kind of God that they wanted to follow and the kind of God that they wanted to sit under and the kind of God that they wanted to listen to, they saw Paul as an obstacle to the message. They saw Paul as an obstacle to the gospel. They saw Paul as an obstacle to what he was speaking. And so what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying is that it's not about the messenger. It's not about me at all. Instead, it's about the, it's about the treasure. It's about the light 
of the gospel, that God has given us the light of the gospel. He has given us this treasure, and he has taken this treasure, and he has placed it in jars of clay. He has placed it in jars of clay. Now, what's neat about that is jars of clay is not a particularly flattering comparison, right? It's not a particularly flattering comparison, okay? He, he's not talking about, he's, he, what he's not saying here is that he's, God has taken uh, this treasure of the gospel and placed it within fine china, okay? Uh, he, he's not saying that he's, he's taken it and placed it in, in ornate, you know, perfectly engineered, uh, you know, like wooden mahogany boxes here. He, he's saying that, like, first of all, this would have been a very, uh, like, lowly comparison, all right? This would have been a very lowly comparison. This would have been something that would have been of immeasurable value placed in something that was incredibly cheap. This is taking a diamond and putting it inside of a cardboard box. You ever wonder why we do that? You know, like we, we have buy an engagement ring that's, you know, $3,000, $4,000, $5,000. We walk around with it in a cardboard box. You know, like, look at, you know, we have this great protector here, cardboard box, you know. Uh, this is the comparison here. We have a diamond ring in a cardboard box. We have, we have an immeasurable treasure walking around with it in, in, a, in, a, in a clay jar, something that, is, something that is cheap. You know, like now, when we excavate some of, these, uh, some of these ancient towns, the things that we see the most of typically are shards of clay. Shards of clay. These things are everywhere. Every peasant could have shards of could own clay pots. They could make their own. They could go and afford to buy them. These things are easy to come by. These things are lowly. What he's saying here is that no container, no messenger is better than another. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. I'm not better than Apollos. Apollos is not better than I am. We're all the same. It's not about how smooth we are or how smooth we aren't. It's not about how eloquent we are or how eloquent we aren't. It's not, it's not about how impressive the packaging is or how impressive the packaging isn't. We're all just jars of clay. We're all just common clay pots. We're all just these lowly packaged pots. But I think even more at the forefront of Paul's mind, is how fragile they are. How fragile they are. Clay pots, earthenware pots, over time they would all get these cracks, right? Over time you would, you would have a pot and it, it would be used, but you know they, they get brittle. And the longer that you have them and the more that you use them and the more they're in the weather and the more they're in the sun, the more brittle they become. And the more brittle they become, they would slowly begin to get cracks. And over time, the more cracks they would begin to get, the, the eventually they would become compromised. And the more compromised they would become, eventually they would just disintegrate around it, right? And I think what Paul is saying is, look, this, this man that I am, this person that I am, this, this preacher that I am, this apostle that I am, I'm just, I'm just a pot. I'm just, I'm just a fragile man. I'm, I'm filled with cracks. I'm, I'm constantly cracking. I'm constantly breaking. I'm, I'm constantly just showing my weakness and filled with weakness and filled with brokenness. And every day and every week, it's like I get a new crack. You feel like that sometimes? I feel like that. It's like every day, you know, like, like it's like the older that you get, you, you begin to injure yourself sleeping, right? You feel like that? Like, you, you wake up, you're like, I don't even know what I did. You know, like, like you too, you might hurt yourself playing football, and then you start hurting yourself playing golf, and then you hurt yourself sleeping. 
right? I, mean, I remember the first time I had a golf injury. I thought, you sissy. You know, like, I can't even tell somebody I have a golf injury, you know? But then, then when you wake up and you're hurt from sleeping, you're like, I missed the golf injuries, you know? Like, golf injuries sound manly compared to sleeping injuries, right? And this is what Paul's talking about. This is what Paul's talking about. He's like, he, he says, I'm fragile. I'm breaking. I'm breaking down. I'm breaking down emotionally. I'm breaking down spiritually. I'm breaking down, I'm breaking down physically. I, I, I'm, this, I'm, I'm a clay pot. And inside of me, inside of me is this, is this, is this incredibly, incredibly valuable, this immeasurably valuable treasure. Now, what you have to understand is this would have blown the doors off of a first century Greek. See, they subscribed to this, this philosophy called Stoicism. Stoicism. They were, they were Stoics. So, so what, what the Stoics believed is they believed that if you would just have this, they, they believed that true manhood was essentially defined, or true adulthood was, was, a, was, a, was, was defined by having a steely exterior, where essentially... No matter what your circumstances were, no matter what was going on in your family, no matter what was going on in your business, no matter what was going on in your life, you just looked the same. You looked the same. You always just had a calm demeanor. You always had, that, that's why we say, you know, like he's stoic, right? He's stoic. He always just looks stonewall. He always looks stone-faced. We, we still use that word now, right? So no matter what was happening, no matter if your business went belly up, no matter if your, your daughter died tragically at, at five of cancer, no matter if your wife ran off and abandoned your family, no matter what was going on in your life, you always looked the same, you always portrayed happiness, you always uh, reacted with the same level of lack of emotion in all scenarios, in all situations, and you always portrayed happiness. This was the philosophy of the Stoics. This was the philosophy of Corinth. This was the pervasive philosophy of Corinth. And this was what they expected. This was what they expected of their preachers. This is what they were expecting out of Paul. And this was the critique of Paul by the Corinthian church. And they're looking at Paul and they're saying, Paul, this is not what we're getting from you. This is not what we're getting from you. You look like you're always having problems, Paul. You look like you're always struggling, Paul. You're always walking with a limp, Paul. You're always talking about being shipwrecked and stoned. You're always talking like you have issues, Paul. You're always looking like you're needy, Paul. You're always looking like you need something, Paul. Paul, you don't look stoic. Paul, you don't have a steely exterior. Paul, you seem up and down. What's the issue? You know what Paul does? Paul responds the opposite of the way that I respond. I would have responded. You know how I would have responded? I, I think I, I, I put, I've tried to put myself in Paul's position. I think I would have responded in one of two ways. I, I think Cody's response A would have been, you guys can just kiss off, right? Like, you guys can all just pound sand. I'll go to Galatia, right? Or I'll go to Philippi. Philippi seemed to really have a high opinion of Paul. He really had a high opinion of them. Like they seemed to have really get, like been a good match personality-wise. Like I think I might have that that could have been response A. Like there's a lot of people that seem to like Paul. You know, like that could have been that could have been. All right, maybe I'll, maybe maybe Timothy and I'll just go to the next town over. How about that? Or Cody's response B. Cody's response B could have been, I'll speak more eloquently. 
I'll, 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 I'll try to be more of who you want me to be. I'll stop complaining so much. I'll, I'll stop being all of these things. But, but Paul doesn't do any of those things. Paul doesn't do either of those things. Do you, do you know what Paul does? Do you know what Paul does at the, at the possibility at the possibility of the church at Corinth thinking less of him? At the possibility of the church of, of Corinth thinking less of them? Paul writes to them. And do you know what he says? Do you know what he says? Paul writes back to them and he says, I'm afflicted in every way. I'm afflicted in every way. He doesn't back down. I'm perplexed. You know what the word perplexed literally means? I'm stressed. I'm stressed. I'm under stressed. I'm under duress. I'm perplexed. I'm confused about my situation. I'm not, I'm not at all at ease about the scenario in my life, about the circumstances in my life. I'm under duress about what's going on. I feel like the walls of my life are closing in on me. That's what that means. He says, I'm, 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 I'm persecuted. I'm being, I'm being hunted down by people that want to injure me because I love Jesus. I'm being hunted down by them. He says, I'm being struck down. I'm being struck down. I have, I have people that, that are, are trying to, to smite me. People that are trying to bring physical harm to me. People that are, are trying to, to strike me down in my pursuit to spread the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Paul doesn't back down. Paul doubles down. Paul, Paul doesn't change who he is in Christ. Paul doesn't transform himself into a stoic. Paul doesn't transform his exterior into a, a steely exterior. He doesn't begin to portray false happiness. Instead, Paul doubles down on the realities of who he is in Christ because he wants to draw them in, not to himself, but into the gospel. Into the gospel. Paul doesn't want to ha- cause them to have a higher opinion of himself. In fact, this is quite likely could have caused them to have a lower opinion of himself. Instead, what Paul is going to do is he's going to draw them in to have a higher opinion of Christ. Of Christ. He wants them to have a true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding of why it is that Christ came and what it is that Christ came to accomplish. What, Christ, what Paul understands is if they continue pressing on in the Stoic philosophy, they cannot have a true New Testament church. They can't have a true New Testament church. They can't have a true New Testament understanding of the gospel. And they can't truly understand the true glory and fruit of the new covenant that Christ has come to secure. And so Paul doesn't change himself. And Paul doesn't tell them to kiss off. Instead, Paul draws them out of their stoic their stoic refuges and their their stoic philosophy into the reality, into the glory of human brokenness, into the reality of what it means to be afflicted, into the reality of what it means to look real pain and real affliction in the eye and face it, and face it. And that's what a lot of us have to do this morning. That's what a lot of us have to do. A lot of us are really accustomed to putting on a smiling face, looking in the mirror and saying, you're happy when you're really not. To coming in, shaking people's hand and saying, I'm fine, I'm good, I've had a good week when you really have it and you're really not and things really aren't fine. We're really good at portraying a steely exterior that portrays happiness when on the inside we're unraveling and falling apart and we're anything but happy. See, brothers and sisters, Paul had a greater vision for the church than steely, stoic Christians pretending to be happy. 
Paul had a vision for the church that involved real, authentic community, real, authentic spirits of confession, real people dealing with real brokenness, coming together under the banner of the true and risen Christ that came so that they could deal with the broken reality of this world together, together. It's hard, though. It's hard, though. Because we think, we think that if I come and I tell you how things are really going, if, if I come and I tell you how my life is really coming off the tracks, if I come and I tell you the sins that I'm really struggling with, if I tell you about the pornography addiction that's actually in my life, if I tell you about the lust that's really there, if I tell you about the materialism that's truly fluctuating in my heart, if I tell you about the debt that's really back there, if I tell you about the needs that I really have, you'll turn me off. In other words, we come into the church believing that everybody else in the church expects us to be a stoic. And we believe that the people in the church expect us to be a stoic, and so we become a stoic, and we portray happiness. We project out something that isn't real because we believe the people in the church need us to be something that we really aren't. And so we go with all of these idols in our hearts and all of this false bravado built up and all of these fake imaginary masks portrayed on the outside and on the inside we are falling apart. Oh, brothers and sisters, my heart breaks for us. My heart breaks for us that we wouldn't double down in our sin and that we wouldn't double down in our brokenness and that we wouldn't double down into our, into our steely, fake happiness, but that rather, rather, we would say, I am afflicted in every way. Rather, rather, we would say, I am perplexed. I am stressed. It feels like the walls of my life are closing in on me. Will you help me, brother? Will you help me, sister? As I meditated on this this week, you know what I realized? I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. Just, just Wednesday, I asked people to pray for me. Just, just a small group of, of, of men and women that I'm, 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 I feel particularly close to. And as soon as I sent out a couple of text messages to, to people to pray for me, do you know what immediately I heard? I went back and I read those text messages and I began to analyze them. I said, you sound like a desperate fool. You sound like a desperate fool. You are always... You are always sending out these text messages and you're always, you sound like such a little drama queen. That's what I was telling myself. And you know what I was, and I was sitting here writing this sermon to preach it to my church family. And I realized that I have this need in my life to look tougher than I am, to look stronger than I am, to look more stoic than I really am. But if we're going to be the kind of church that Christ has called us to be, that Christ has enabled us to be, that Paul is demonstrating himself to be, the greatest of the apostles perhaps, the greatest theologian in the history of the church, and here he is willing to say, I am afflicted in every way. I am stressed. I am persecuted. I am struck down. Then brothers and sisters, we've got to be willing to confess our sins to each other. We've got to be willing to be weak with one another. We've got to be willing to be vulnerable with one another. Do you know what the church is? The church is a place for cracked pots. 
The church is a place for cracked pots. The church is a place where the jars of clay come together to, to, to mend our cracked pots. It's a place where we come together and we say, I am breaking down. I am disintegrating. Can you help me, brother? Can you help me, sister? My health is coming apart. Can you help me? My life is unraveling. Can you help me? I have sin in my life. Can I entrust my sin to you without it being weaponized against me? Can I entrust my failing marriage to you without you judging me? Can I entrust my addiction to you without you coming against me and instead coming beside me? Can I entrust these things to you? Church, if we can get there, if we can get there, we can reach our community. We can do that. We can do that. Church is a place. The new covenant church is a place for cracked pots. That's what Paul was teaching them. He had a grander vision for the church. He had a grander vision for the church than a stoic, steely-faced, fake happiness church. Let's adopt. Let's adopt Iron City, Paul's vision for the church. Let's adopt Paul's vision for the church. He says that there's a specific reason, though. There's a did you catch this? There's a specific reason that, that, that God put this immeasurably valuable treasure inside of such weak, fragile, cheap jars of clay. Did you catch this? He says it right at the beginning. Let's read it together. But we have this treasure, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Did you see this? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That the weakness of the container, the weakness of the measure, puts on showcase the power of the treasure itself. You see that? The weakness of the jars of clay, the weakness of Paul's affliction, the weakness of Paul's persecution. The weakness that Paul shows in all of these scenarios, the weakness that Paul shows in all of these circumstances, actually goes on to show God's surpassing glory and God's surpassing might in all situations, in all circumstances. That Paul's weakness shows God's unsurpassed might, unsurpassed glory. It's like Paul says later on, right? I have this thorn in the flesh. I've prayed and prayed and prayed that God would remove it from me. And God has said no. Why? Because God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. So what, is God, what does Paul go on to say? He says, I'm perplexed. I'm stressed out. But I'm not overcome. I'm not overcome. Why? Why am I not overcome? Because God is with me. God is with me. I am afflicted in every way. But I am not crushed. How is it that I am not crushed? I am a cracking, splintering, disintegrating jar of clay. But I still am not crushed. How am I not crushed? God is with me. God is with me. I am coming apart. But God is with me. I am struck down. But I am not destroyed. How am I not destroyed? I'm just a clay pot. You'll find clay pots like me scattered all over antiquity. How am I not destroyed? Because God, almighty God, the God who spoke and worlds came to be. 
Trinity, the God who at this very moment is holding together the very components of DNA, God, God, God is with me. And my weakness only shows the might of Almighty God. You see, this treasure, this treasure is not protected by its container. You see this? The jars of clay contains the treasure, but it is not protected by the, by the container. Instead, the container is held together by the treasure. The container is held together by the treasure. It is the, op- it is the opposite of what we were accustomed to. It is the opposite of what we see in our world. The treasure, the gospel, the God inside of the container, inside of the jars of clay, holds together that which is fragile, that which is seemingly cheap. It holds it together not just now, but forever. In verses 10 and 11, he says verses virtually the same thing, but in a different way. He said, always carrying in the body of death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies. Do you hear what he's saying? So he's saying virtually the same thing, but he's saying it in a different way. He's saying we're always carrying Jesus' death in the body on one hand, but we're doing it so that the life of Jesus' resurrection may be made clear on the other. You see, the reason that the baby came to Bethlehem, the reason that the virgin gave birth to a child was because we were afflicted in every way. You understand that? The the reason that that Christ came, the reason that Christ came was that we were going to face all of the realities that He came to bear on the cross. That we were going to walk in the likeness of His death. That we were going to face brokenness. And we were going to face hardship. You were going to face death. And you were going to face depression. And you were going to face cancer. And you were going to face empty wombs. And you were going to face broken marriages. And you were going to face the walls of your life closing in on you. And you were going to know what it means to wake up one morning and just hurt and not know why. And you were going to know what it meant to go to bed at night sad and not know why. You were going to know what it meant to face the hardship of this life without any rhyme or reason. You were going to be afflicted in every way, but you were going to be crushed. You were going to be struck down, and you were going to be destroyed. You were going to be persecuted, but you were going to find despair. Except that Christ came. Except that Christ came. Except that Christ came. You see, brothers and sisters, because Christ came, because Christ came now, for those who repent of their sins and those who find faith in Christ, there are two simultaneous realities, an already but not yet reality. There is the reality, there are the realities of death and the realities of life, the realities of the cross and the realities of the resurrection. Right now, we are bearing the realities of death in our flesh that is melting away, our flesh that is soon decaying and rotting away, the realities of brokenness from this world, the realities of affliction that we face here, the realities of perplexing life circumstances that bear down on us. 
the realities of cancer and headaches that you face, the, the realities of brokenness and sadness that you know, the realities of depression and anxiety that you face, the, the realities of, of babies that you bury and the real, realities of miscarriages that you know, the realities of, of difficult Christmases that you know, all of the brokenness that you know on the side of the cross. For those who are in Christ, you get to face those things in light, in the light of the hope of the resurrection. That you face all of the brokenness, all of the brokenness and all of the perplexity and all of the hardship. And you face it through the, through the lens of the light of the resurrection. And you don't face them through the, through, the, through the hopelessness and the despair that you would have faced them otherwise. Because Christ came. Be- because of the advent. Because of who Christ is. You face all of the hardship even if you don't know the timing. And even if you don't understand the circumstances. And even if it seems bone crushing in the second. You still face it through, through this life giving resurrection hope of the risen Christ who has given you life. And what you know is because of the second advent, because the Christ is returning, is that the cross, the cross realities that you know now is giving way to the resurrection realities that you will only know one day. That the cross we know in balance with the resurrection we know now is giving way to only the resurrection that we will know forever one day. See, brothers and sisters, one of the most liberating realities that I've learned over the last couple of years is that we don't have to call bad things good. Christians don't have to do that. I think we do a disservice to our world when we throw our Christian cliches at broken people. I think we do a disservice when we look at people that have just gotten a diagnosis of cancer or a diagnosis of death or have just face incredible hardship and say, well, God's ways are not our ways and just expect them to feel better about it. I think we do a disservice to them when they are soaking their pillows with tears and we pat them on the back and throw some platitude at them and just make them feel better. Paul doesn't do that. He says, I am perplexed. I am on the verge of being crushed. But when I look at it through the lens of the resurrection, I have hope. I think the Christian's responsibility is not to throw platitudes and cliches, but rather to view real pain and to call real pain, real pain, and rather to look at it real pain through the lens of real hope and to look real pain through real tears with real hope and to sing through real tears and real pain with real hope and real worship. See, brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be a that's what it means to be a new covenant Christian. And that, that, that is what it means that Jesus has come. That is the glory of the first advent in light of the second advent. I may be dying, but I will be raised to life. They may hate me, but I will be raised to life in perfect relationship and perfect community forever. I may have lost my baby, but I'm going to be with my baby. This may hurt me now, but God has promised that this will be used for my good forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see that the, that, the, that the pain of the cross is given way to the resurrection? That is the glory of the baby that has come. He quotes Psalm 116. He says, I believed and so I spoke. 
I believed and so I spoke. Psalm 116 is the psalmist is speaking in the midst of affliction. And in Psalm 116 and speaking in the midst of affliction, what the psalmist is saying is even in the midst of my affliction, I trust in the goodness of God. I trust in the character of God. I trust in the deliverance of God and trusting in the goodness of God and trusting in the deliverance of God and trusting in the character of God. I still believe in God and I still speak to God and I still trust in God. And what Paul is saying is he is, he is taking those words and he is speaking them in the first person here, you see. And he's saying, I'm not going to stop preaching. And I'm not going to stop proclaiming. Though I am afflicted in every way, though I am perplexed, Though I, am, though I am persecuted, though it feels like the, the walls of my life are crushing in, I believe in God in the eyes of my affliction, in, in spite of my affliction, and I'm going to keep preaching, and I'm going to keep proclaiming, and I'm going to keep declaring and the good news of the gospel, and I'm going to keep being who God has called me to be. And he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. He said, because that is the pattern of my Savior, right? He looks to Jesus' resurrection, but what happened before Jesus' resurrection? The only reason that Jesus had to be resurrected is because first, Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was struck down. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, according to Isaiah 53. And having been crushed for our iniquities and bearing our cross and being imputed with our own sinfulness so that we might be imputed with His righteousness. He was then raised as our resurrection, as the first fruits of our own resurrection. And Paul says, He is the pattern of my life and He is the pattern of my ministry. And so I will walk in the likeness of His death so that I might be raised in the likeness of His resurrection. I will bear the affliction of His cross and I will bear the affliction of His name because I know, I know that I will be raised in the glory of His resurrection. He is the pattern and He is the one that I'm following and He is the shape that I want my life to take. He is the shape that I want my life to look like. But it's an interesting thing that Paul's doing. Isn't it? He goes on to say, he says, grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You see, what Paul knows is, is that wherever he goes, whatever, wherever he spreads the gospel, wherever he proclaims the gospel, suffering spreads. Suffering spreads. More people suffer. More people die. More people are persecuted. You ever thought about this? I, I became keenly aware of this in Swaziland this past year. We're talking to a woman whose son was just offered as a human sacrifice. I, I'm, I'm talking to pastors, and, and we're coming against the prosperity gospel there. And many of these pastors go back to churches that are prosperity gospel churches. And they're saying, Pray for me, pastor, for my church is a prosperity gospel church, and I do not know how they will receive the true gospel. And I'm thinking, we are, we are teaching them this, but we are inviting them into a life of suffering, a real life of suffering. So why do you do that, Paul? Why do we do that, Iron City? Why do we do that, Cody? Why, why do we go to places and invite people into a life of suffering to follow after the, the true gospel and to follow after the true Christ 
what, what, why would we go to a place like, like the Middle East or, or, or the Horn of Africa? Why do we go to places like that and spread a message that is going to invite affliction and, and persecution and hardship into a person's life? Why would we do that? Because you see, what Paul is saying is the suffering is going to go away after a little while. The suffering is fleeting. The difficulty is fleeting. The affliction is fleeting. The hardship is fleeting. The thankfulness that comes lasts forever. It lasts forever. The song that the Lord places in their hearts, the new song of worship that comes to their name, the new song, it lasts forever. The joy that the Lord puts there, it lasts forever. That's what Paul had found out. See, we look at the cross and we know only God can make this new. Only God can make this good. I wonder how many situations like that are around here. We look to the cross and it is a despicable image, naturally. A despicable image. A Roman cross, a place of execution for the worst of criminals. A place of execution and torture. A place filled with blood. A place filled with with just with imagery of, of, of torture and, and a place which, which the Lord Jesus himself, the picture of perfection and righteousness, will be utterly slaughtered and splintered and mobbed. God makes it beautiful and good in a place of thankfulness. He goes to Swaziland, this, this, this mama that lost her baby, loved the Lord. And God brings him into the kingdom of God and places him before his throne. Where right now, right now, there are seraphim declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And on his knees, he is looking up at the Lord Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus. And he is there. He is there. And do you know what he is, brothers and sisters? He is thankful. He is thankful. Do you know what God has done? He has made. Right now, there are circumstances and situations all over this house. And you are bearing the cross. And you are bearing suffering. And you are walking after the Lord the best you know how. And you have no idea how it's going to turn. You have no idea how your obedience in the, in the Lord is going to turn to good. But you can look to the cross and you can look to the obedience of Paul and you can be assured, you can be assured that if God can turn that to thankfulness and he can turn Paul's to thankfulness, he can turn yours to thankfulness. Because Christ has come. Christ came so that one day your suffering might be transformed into thankfulness. This is what Paul says in the closing part of verse of chapter 4 and verse 16. So we do not lose heart. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to things that are, are seen but to things that are unseen. The things that are, are, are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says that our momentary affliction is light and momentary. I don't know about you, but my afflictions don't feel light to me. My afflictions don't feel light to me. 
When the money runs out, it doesn't feel light. When I wake up again and my head hurts again, it doesn't feel light. When you come home and your wife isn't there, it doesn't feel light. When your kids rebel, it doesn't feel light. It doesn't feel light. When you're at odds with your boss again, it doesn't feel light. When you lose your job, when your business goes belly up, when you declare for bankruptcy, it doesn't feel light. And yet, Paul doesn't say some of our momentary circumstances, some of our earthly afflictions. He, see, he speaks in sweeping terms. All of this, everything that we face here, every bit of it, all of the death we know, all of the financial woes that we face, all of the relational strife that we see, everything that we know, all of it is life. And what is he speaking of? He is speaking of perspective. He is speaking comparatively. Compared to glory. Compared to eternity. Compared to all that we will one day see. Compared to all we will one day know. All of it is momentary. All of it is passing through. All of it will quickly go away. All of it will feel like mere peanuts. All of it is so, so, so very small. It is light and momentary and transient. It is passing through in comparison. He says, so do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. When God brings you up, to the edge of the promised land and you look out and your opponents look like giants and you feel like a grasshopper about to be stomped. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart because God doesn't bring you up to the edge of the promised land just to have you be stomped. No, march forward with the Lord your God because your weakness serves to demonstrate the surpassing might of God himself. When you have watched God deliver revival by the missile of fire against a darkened sky, don't go under the broom tree and feel as though you were all alone and lose heart. No, do not lose heart. Your weakness is intended to allow the surpassing might of God to be demonstrated through your weakness and made perfect. No, press on against your enemies. Press on in the face of your affliction. Press on because brothers and sisters the baby has come the Christ has come and he is coming again the cross is giving way to the resurrection and you will be raised with Christ and you will be made victors with Christ and you will see all of your sufferings and all of your afflictions turn 